0: Blog talk Radio
1: Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio Featuring A Course in Miracles Dream Interpretations Guided Meditation And the Psychic and Metaphysics Free-for-All it's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium, discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host, Charlotte Spicer.
2: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to let you know that our sponsor for this segment today is Emeka Wenifu, author of The Miracle Trilogy, a series that illustrates the miraculous journeys of three women beginning in the early part of the 20th century to modern times. Perfect for the adolescent to mature reader, you will find the most amazing wisdom and inspiration in these stories of spiritual triumph. Visit Jackie'sMiracle.com to learn more about this award-winning young author who is sure to make his mark on the literary landscape. Thank you, Mecca, for your generous support. So, what do law enforcement, Hollywood, nonfiction paperback books, and humanitarian efforts have in common? Randy Sutton. He'll be joining us in a few moments, but let me just give you a little bit of an idea of what this man is about. Randy started as a street cop in Princeton, New Jersey. He moved west, where he served for over two decades and became the most highly decorated officer in the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. With more than 34 years of extensive police experience in investigations, administration, and instruction, he is the author of numerous professional articles and books. Somewhere along his journey, he stumbled into the world of Hollywood, finding himself appearing in such films as Casino with Robert De Niro and Sharon Stone, Miss Congeniality 2 with Sandra Bullock and Regina King, and being featured in numerous episodes of the popular television series, Cops. In his latest writing effort, A Cop's Life, True Stories from Behind the Badge, Randy bares his soul as he invites you into his memories of what it's really like to wear a badge. It is a heart-wrenching account of 19 harrowing incidents that took place during his career that will leave you speechless. These stories depict perpetrators and events that every American citizen prays to avoid. Some of them are people whose intentions are as dark as their souls. This incredibly descriptive narrative reveals not only what it takes to be a cop, but what it takes to survive being a cop and keep your psyche intact. A Cop's Life offers a window through which the reader can witness and come to understand from a safe distance all that an officer must endure in the line of duty to protect the rest of us. What sets it apart from other true life accounts is that this book clearly emerges from the heart of a poet, a man who can describe his emotions with such raw honesty and precision that it makes you want to reach through the pages and somehow protect this hero from his own recollections of the truth behind all of the accolades and awards. While it's extremely thought-provoking and often disturbing, by the time you reach the end, you'll see that it was a spiritual journey all along. If your faith in humanity needs to be restored, this book will take you by the hand and inspire you. Now, he helps other members of law enforcement through his Policing with Honor seminars and has a new project, The Legacy Challenge. But let me see if he's here. Hang on. I think here he comes now. Well, hello, Randy. Welcome to the show. Glad you could make it. <laughs>
1: that, was, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. This is an amazing topic because you, you give us a, a real look inside the life of a police officer, and it's not what it seems from the outside. Uh, there are a lot of people who have reservations, some with just downright hatred for the police force, and in this book you just really you really bear your soul you really do so I'm glad you did like the introduction but if it's okay with you Randy I'd like to dedicate this segment to your father
1: Mm. my pleasure thank you
2: Okay. appreciate that ladies and gentlemen in loving memory of Mr. Arthur Sutton Randy's dad to whom he dedicated the book which that's where you kind of start out and it, it just grabs you right from where it is But before we get into the book, I wanted to um, get an idea of how dangerous it is out there. And statistically, you report that less than half of 1% of law enforcement ever fire their weapons in the line of duty, but you've done so five times. Um, You've also delivered babies, saved a six-month-old shooting victim, rescued hostages. We'll go into all of that, but first I'd like to ask, as an adolescent, was there anything in real life or the silver screen that fueled your desire to become a cop?
1: Well, you know, I, I, uh, I consider myself very lucky, very fortunate, because I knew ever since I was a little kid going to be my career choice. And there, there were a couple people that, that really added to that. One was my grandfather, who was a deputy sheriff, and um, who was actually shot in the line of duty. Uh, trying to arrest of all things a poacher, uh, he did not die, but he was you know seriously injured, and um, so my uh, my grandfather was a, was a deputy, my father and my mother were both uh, in the court system. They both were uh, court reporters, and so I grew up listening to the tales of trials and and lawyers and cops, and it was always a fascinating topic to me, and uh, so I. I, I pretty much had the direction set um, uh, when I was when I was uh, a youngster, and then of course I did I did enjoy some um, some of the uh, television shows. In fact, one really had a, had an effect on my later life. It was uh, to me it was probably the best cop show uh, ever, and it was Joseph Wamba's um, uh, television show. And I actually it was called Police Story. And it was mm. the first anthology series about uh, different characters. And uh, Joseph Wamba later, uh, of course, for, for people who don't know, Joseph Wamba was a Los Angeles um, police officer who um, who wrote some of the most classic uh, police books ever. Uh, one was called The Onion Field, which later became a motion picture. And mm. um, And there were a number of them, but... Uh, Joe Wamba was a, was an early hero of mine from that television show, and I wound up reading all of his books. And then, it, as the way that life works, he wound up giving me a a, a, a jacket quote for my book, and I, I got to meet him finally and and have lunch with him.
2: You you say as life works, but I'm going to I'm going to um throw back the way your life works. <laughs> that's, that's that's awesome. I'm glad you had that experience. And so about the movie appearances and the TV show, uh, what's what would you say the biggest difference between Hollywood and reality uh police work? How do they differ? And what what would you say to that
1: Well, you know, there there, there is um absolutely Zero reality when it comes to uh, to the the movie thing. Um, you know the the portrayal that I I don't know if it's typecast, but in the in the movie and television roles that I've had, pretty much all of them I've been I've played a cop, and um, you know tried to bring some sense of realism. In fact, the the re, the way that I got the part in the movie Casino, which was actually a pretty good speaking role was that a casting agent had seen me on the television show Cops and contacted me because they were going to... you know, I got I got a phone call literally out of the blue saying, hey, uh, uh, would you be interested in reading for a role in, in a movie that's going to be filmed in Las Vegas? And uh, I said, well, sure. Um, and they told me that the director, they didn't mention who the director was, was looking for realism in this role, and that's why... They were calling me because they saw that, that, that I was on, on television. So okay. I agreed to come do the read and, and walked, into, walked into the room, and there stands Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro standing there, uh, and my, my audition consisted of me telling stories about my police career, similar to what you read in, uh, in A Cop's Life. And that's okay. how I got the role. <laughs>
2: And they like your personality, obviously, and, and you you do have stage presence too, for that. So it, it's a pretty good mixture.
1: Well, you know, it, uh, my my early uh, in my early childhood, I studied music in a um, in a um, music school called Columbus Boy Choir, and learned a love for music, and then started doing theater in Princeton, uh, and did a, a number of uh, of theatrical plays, and and I so I, I was no stranger to the acting uh, part, and uh, oh. it's something I've, I've always enjoyed.
2: Okay, I didn't know that about you. That's we share the same background then.
1: Well, you see, I do keep some secrets.
2: Oh, hmm. <laughs> not book not You didn't. Well, okay, maybe you kept a few. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, with regard to the um, being on the TV show, cops, there's something that is burning in my mind. With all that you have to do, especially after reading the book, and you know you. You could be in one frame of mind one second. You get a call, and then the adrenaline starts pumping, and you've you've got to get to where you you need to go. You don't know what you're you're going to find when you get there. And, you know, of course, all of your senses are heightened. But with regard to being on the show, and you have to do all of that and be mindful of a cameraman or two and being in the car and talking for the benefit of the camera, at any point, did you ever just – get to where you wanted to say to somebody, excuse me, would you please just get the hell out of my way?
1: Um, you know, it, it's interesting that you asked that question um, because having the, there was a, two people in the car with me. There was a cameraman and a sound man with a, with a boom mic. You know, they follow you around with this big stick yeah. over your head. That's got a, um, you know, a, uh, microphone. a microphone and mm-hmm. it, it's a it's, it's a little uncomfortable at the beginning and um, you know, it, but these guys are very very professional and they've seen it all um they knew when to get out of the way they knew when to uh you know get back uh, but they they were very very brave i mean they they're, they don't have any weapons so they're right in the middle of everything and they're just um they're the camera and the, and the uh and the mic uh so they, i i actually got along very very well they caught some amazing stuff on camera stuff that never made the television show because it was just too gritty, if you will, yeah. um, and uh, so uh, we actually wound up becoming friends, and I still have contact with those with those guys today. And the first time I was on that show was 1989, believe it or not. And then again, I was on three seasons of it. Um, as a, I was there as a patrol officer, and then as a sergeant for two seasons. And so they uh, they got a lot of episodes with me. Uh, one of a kind of amusing story was um, they would generally get out of the car every time I got out of the car. But if something was really, really mundane, they would just sit in the car. So on one afternoon, um, I was driving through the parking lot of a a supermarket, and I see a car with two people in it. There's a a guy behind the driver's seat and a woman in the passenger seat, and she's leaning out of the car, vomiting onto the pavement. Well. Uh Just wanted to check and see if she was okay if she needed any medical assistance i called out that i would be out with uh with this with this car and the film crew knew that this wasn't going to be anything at least they felt it wasn't going to be anything and when i got out to approach the uh, the woman um her boyfriend immediately jumped out of the car and started screaming at me and and i was telling him. uh now I still have I still have a microphone on and the film crew is recording everything that is being said and they're filming me from the car just in uh-huh. case something crazy goes goes on here.
3: Right. So
1: they uh they're filming this and this guy is just he is a very aggressive um insulting individual and I'm telling and I was telling him I said look man I'm just checking to see if if your girlfriend or your wife is okay you don't want a piece of me really you don't and I checked with her and she was she was having morning sickness is what it was
3: mm, okay. so
1: I just wanted to I just wanted to leave and he, this guy is is just screaming at me and he's getting in my face and finally I told him I said look unless you want to go to jail you'll go back to your car and you'll get away from me and eventually he did that well okay. We go on about our business, and uh, uh, three days later, I get called into internal affairs on a brutality complaint where this guy claimed he came into internal affairs with a cast on his leg and said oh. that I beat him up and smashed his leg with my with my <gasps> baton. Baton. <laughs> and,
3: <laughs> and
1: so I had, to, I had to answer a brutality complaint, and, I'm going, and I thought, wait a minute. I think these guys filmed that, and they gave me the film, and I showed it to... Uh, Internal Affairs, and it wound up saving me.
2: Wow, that is funny, and it's a, it's a miracle. But you were in full uniform, right? And this guy's just uh, talking oh, to you yeah. that
1: way. Oh it's a, that, that was a common occurrence. I mean, the 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 the, the uh, patience level required to be a police officer. Um, uh, I had it when I was a younger person. I don't really. Yeah. You know, I don't really. I, yeah. I don't know that I could start my career again now. Because I don't have that patience level any longer.
2: No, no, but I mean, but having those people in the car—thank God you had them there and you had your mic on. But isn't that added pressure since, in case something does happen, you know how to, you now have two more people to protect?
1: Uh, the uh, yes, it is in that sense. But they, these guys, like I said, they're, they've they've seen they've, they've seen they've been involved in. You know, filming gun fights, and they've been involved in you know very very violent fights, and yeah. they're uh, they're they're professionals, and, and okay. they know they know how to take care of them. So they know when it's time to they know when it's time to cut and run,
2: kind of back off. Okay, good. Well, on being a police officer, I have a couple questions I wanted to throw your way and kind of get <laughs> some insight. Decades ago, in the seventies, when there was a, a domestic dispute. From Mm -hmm. what I witnessed, the officer's hands seemed to be tied and could only tell someone to leave for the night or go sleep it off or just keep it down. How drastically have the laws, the protocol, procedures changed to ensure domestic safety?
1: Dramatically. Now, I first became a police officer in 1976, and uh, that was just about the time that the domestic violence laws Changed in this country, but the reason they changed was because of a very, very dramatic incident that, uh, that took place. A, um, a woman had contacted the police several times because her husband was drunk and abusive and, and beating her, and, and uh, the cops that responded, it was a smaller town, everybody knew everybody else, and it was, uh, they didn't want to arrest the guy. And uh, so they, 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 they basically blew it off and told him to go sleep it off at his buddy's house. And he came back and he killed her. And that incident sparked outrage all over the, the United States. And that is actually what, what uh, the catalyst to change the domestic violence laws that now um, created, you, you no longer had the option of arresting if there was a physical confrontation, that is, if there was physical violence. You now were mandated to, and that was the first time where mandates actually came into the realm of policing where, okay, it's no longer a discretion. Now, you have to take someone to jail. Now, that's a double-edged sword, I can assure yeah. you, because um, there are, there are uh, times when there was a physical touching, and just because of a touch, someone went to went to jail. And the ramifications of, of a domestic violence are very, very far-reaching. You can no longer own a firearm. Uh, you're going to go to jail for a minimum of 24 hours. And so what happens is there's an abuse that takes place on the opposite side. Hey, uh, you know what? I want to get rid of my husband. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I am going to pretend that he slapped me and right. call the police. Mm-hmm. And that takes place, unfortunately, uh, much more frequently than, than one would believe. And uh, so, you know, there's, there really is a, a, do, a double-edged sword with taking the discretion away, although it's certainly, you know, uh, domestic violence is a very, very serious topic, and it's a, you know, it's a serious crime.
2: It is a serious crime. In the summer of nineteen eighty two I kept a calendar and the police were at my house every other night the entire summer. I well, could never do anything.
1: You must be doing you must have been doing quite a party.
2: Oh no, it was my dad.
1: Oh, okay. So that, that so your father was your father was beating you or beating your mother?
2: uh or both? it it, it, it there wasn't so much beating, but um, verbal, torture, and pushing and shoving. There was no um, weapons came into it eventually, but that was us kids trying to get him off of her.
3: Right, but right.
2: Um, I became very good at making myself go to sleep when I could feel the trouble because I had you know the heightened heightened intuition and I could feel when trouble was coming and I would just go upstairs make myself eventually make myself go to sleep and wake up after the cops left but that was how frequently they were there and they never seemed they seemed willing but they never seemed able to do something and I mean it was it, it was this went on every other day it was, on your mm-hmm. birthday he did everything he could fighting with the neighbors he was a menace <laughs> he really was a menace and right, right. you know, and there was nothing we could do to to get him out of the house. But eventually, he did leave. Um, thank God. But that was a tough summer. It really was.
1: Yeah, and and, and that, that's that's one thing that there have been a lot more tools made available to people to uh, to extricate themselves from situations like that.
2: Uh, right.
1: Much more now than in the in the past.
2: Good. Well, um, I'm glad that. I'm glad that, that police are empowered to do something on that side of that coin. I do. I am aware of people who set other people up to try to cause drama or get them out of the house, and um, it it's disgusting. But yes, it goes on everywhere. But with regard to your career, so the statistics I said, the half of 1% ever even fire their weapons, but you had to draw your gun five times. Do you feel uh- – how do you feel about that? Ooh,
1: well, that I you? Um, it was uh, it was a life changing ex- experience. Uh, um, not not all of those re- re- uh, resulted in people dying. Um, my okay. first my first shooting incident was um, um, a sixteen year old boy who had, um, had stolen a car, and uh, I had been involved in a pursuit. With him and my partner and I, uh, the the suspect uh, crashed the car and and they took off on foot. And I was chasing this guy through a housing project. And I came around the corner and he was there waiting with a gun pointed at me. And uh, and I fired uh, and fired before he did. And I missed him, but but the bullet was hit a hit a, a wall behind him. And a piece of the wall stucco hit him in the head, so he thought he was shot,
2: uh, and so
1: he so he dropped the gun
2: and put but, his hand up. Uh,
1: and put his yeah. That was time for oh, oh, this is too real for me. And uh, but that was that was uh, um, my first. That was my first officer involved shooting. Um, that turned out to be you know a fairly happy ending because no one no one got got hurt. But yeah. Um, that wasn't always the case and and the i know the uh the life-changing event was a, a fatal shooting that i was involved in as a patrol officer and that that literally uh um changed the course of my life because of uh of the of the of the journey that um that it caused the the emotional journey and uh, the spiritual journey that that Resulted because of, uh, of of taking the taking the life of another human being.
2: Mm. That's heavy. That's a heavy weight. But um, unfortunately, someone needs to step in and, and do those things. And I'm sure it, it takes the heart of a lion to be able to to carry that with you. But um, well, but you know, like, if,
1: if if you're not willing to take, if you're not willing to uh, to be a warrior, and that's police officers have to you know, at, at times become warriors, um, then, uh, then you shouldn't put on a badge because, you know, you're, you're required to protect the people that you serve. Yeah. And if you're, if you're not willing to make the, A, the ultimate sacrifice yourself for, for the people that you serve, then you're not willing to, to, to uh, you know, take that ultimate um, action and take another human life then you better do some soul searching because you shouldn't wear a badge.
2: Exactly. Well, there are positive things, but there was an incident that you had that made the papers and the news on February 18, 2009. Um, You do what you have to do in these situations, especially in order to prevent a suicidal person from taking their loved ones with them. Tell us about the shots fired incident where you had to... Make a fateful decision about that suicidal gentleman who, and you had to protect his family.
1: Well, you know that um, that was towards the end of my career. In fact, my it was um, it was really the the last major incident that I was involved in as a police officer. I was um, I was a lieutenant uh, at that time. I was the in fact the watch commander on that night. Watch commander means that you're the highest ranking. Officer in the in the uh, in the city, and so okay. it was my job to respond to any major incident. Well, what happened? Um, I worked the graveyard shift for for the last seven years of my career, and uh, as a field lieutenant, and um, a guy had uh, had gone on a business trip, and he when he returned, uh, he told his wife that he was going to go out drinking, and. This guy was on some serious psychotic medications. Um, He was on lithium and a bunch of other stuff. And his wife told him, look, apparently this is an ongoing issue. She says, if you leave, don't come back. Because if you go out drinking, then, you know, I'm just done with you. And he, he told her he was going out and, you know, he didn't care what she did. So he left and went out drinking. Well, she had been tired of it and she... She hadn't even unpacked his suitcases, and so she tossed him outside. What she didn't know was that there were two guns in mm. those suitcases.:
3: My God. And when he
1: returned home, he was incensed by the fact that, that he, she threw, threw him out. So he, uh, he uh, made threats, and it was you know it's pretty late at night now. She calls the police because he's, he's armed and he's threatening to kill her, and, and they have a little baby, and he's threatening to, to, to kill himself and shoot the cops when they get there, et cetera, et mm-hmm. so cetera. So my, uh, my officers uh, got there, and, and they tried to negotiate with him, and they set up a perimeter around him, and I had a specially trained officer trying to get him to, to drop the gun. At first he only had one, then he had, been, he had two. And what we didn't know was that he was on the phone with his father. He put, he put the phone down, and he had told his father that he was going to have the police kill him. We didn't know that. Oh. And um, uh-huh. um, he uh, then put two guns to his head, and the negotiations were not going well at all. And when I arrived, um, I, I was assessing the situation. I found out that the, that the wife and the baby were still in the house. Where he was directly in front of, right. So I I, decide, I sent a team to get to the back of the house and and evacuate them because that, they were in in harm's way. Unfortunately, they between the in seconds after I sent that team to to make its way to the back of the house, this guy decided he was getting back in the house. So he attempted to get into the house, and and I had to. I, I fired and I and I had to you know give the order that he could not you know we could not let him back in that house and uh, that resulted in his death and okay. uh, so that's uh, that was the that was the last fatal shooting that I was involved in.
2: That's a that's a sad ending and I hope that the wife and the baby are okay today and have gotten over their grief and have somehow found peace and happiness after that. But it's not all these. Um, these horrendous events. I mean, the book recounts 19 of them, <laughs> but you do positive things like delivering babies and rescuing hostages. So my question for you then is, what what is the impact of being a police officer? How, is, how have these experiences affected your life positively and negatively?
1: Well, and they they've done both. They've done both. Um, I, I consider the career choice that I made. Um, When I became a cop, I was the youngest cop in the state of New Jersey, believe it or not. I was 19, which when I look back now on the decisions that I made when I was a 19-year-old police officer, uh, I kind of shake my head and and, uh, wish I could relive those days. But, um, in fact, one of the funny stories about that, they had just changed the age of majority from 21 to 18, so you could vote and you could drink and you could become a cop. And um, I did two out of those 3 You I'll let you figure out what they were.
2: Okay. <laughs> and I
1: became a cop, of course. And, uh, but one thing you couldn't do was you couldn't buy ammunition because the federal firearm statute said you had to be 21. So here I am getting ready to go into the police academy, and I had to ask my mom to go buy my bullets for me.
3: Oh, my I God.
1: <laughs> and that was, a, that was a memory that we shared uh, up until the, the last moments of her life. So we, uh, uh, (laughs) but when when I look back um, on my career, and uh, I look back and and try and see if I would have changed anything, you know, and of course there are moments I would have I would have altered, but basically I know that I made the right decision. I did a lot of uh, I did a lot of good things for people. I was able to you know be involved in their lives. And, and leave it a little better than, than the way I found it, and that's really the most important thing. Is when you know when you when you think of your life's journey, and you think of the people that you touched and the, and the, the way that you um, impacted others. In, in in the totality of it, I think that um, I think that I made a contribution, and I couldn't have done it had I not been a police officer. So you know, was there sacrifice? Yeah, there was there was there hardship, absolutely. But you know what? Um, when I look back, uh, I, I I know that that journey was worth it.
2: Mm. And what message would you pass on to other people, whether they aspire to be in law enforcement or just regular civilians? Is there a message you want to pass on? Well, you
1: know, it's. Um, uh, it's very difficult to become a police officer. Uh, actually, the statistics are pretty interesting. Only one in 5,000 uh, applicants ever yes. actually get hired as a police officer. Statistically, really? it's harder to get a job as a cop than it is to get into medical school, believe it or not.
0: Yeah. And
1: um, and there's a reason for that, and that reason is because many people don't prepare themselves Um, in the early part of their lives in order to take on that kind of responsibility. When I say that, I mean that people make decisions early on that ruin their chances to become a cop. They get involved in drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. They uh, um, steal. They lie. Mm -hmm. They uh, don't lead lives that are... um,
2: Upstanding. That that are
1: moral, basically. Yes. And so that what that does is that when it comes down to, to testing for, to become a cop, well, your past is going to catch up to you. And, uh, and that past eliminates a whole lot of people. So by the time that they, 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 you know, make a determination that, you know what, I think I got my life together, I, I want to go be a cop, well, it's too late. You have to understand that in order to, Take on that mantle of responsibility um you have to lead a life that is pretty worthwhile even before you get hired right. and so you know for the people that that we serve you know it you want the you want the best quality police officer you want people that 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 understand uh the principles of power that don't abuse it, and so you know that's what you want um and it's becoming harder and harder to find those those men and women, believe it or not uh our the, the metro police is going through a testing process now, and out of twelve hundred applicants um they were lucky to get forty that could that could oh. pass the physical test, pass the the written test and then the backgrounds mm-hmm. right so right that's um you know that's 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 the message that i would say
2: well is there is there a, a certain level of life experience that helps you if you were to be accepted um, into the force? Is there a certain type of life experience that does kind of give you some street smarts, I'll say? Because I heard of a man who wanted to be a cop and had an absolutely squeaky past. But when it came to applying and being an officer, he, absolutely, he knew absolutely nothing about drugs. <laughs> so... and. And I would under, you know, like, yeah, well, why would you? How, how do you get street smarts if you don't spend a whole lot of time in the streets? How do you get applied for a job? You know, you would have to be off the radar and get that experience, I would assume. But this man did not get the job because they said, you're going to get us killed. Like, you know, so what kind of well, I, you know, experience that, helps? That,
1: okay, I I can't even answer that because what somebody says being the reason that they didn't get the job doesn't mean that that's the reason they didn't get the job. Uh-huh. You know, there's, there's, a, oh, there's a whole lot more to becoming a cop. There's a, uh, you know, first of all, you've got to pass the written test. And believe it or not, I can tell you that, that there are a lot of young men and women right now who can't even write a sentence, uh, can't write a paragraph. So how could they ever even hope to do a, a report that might put someone in prison? You know, that's part of the preparation is being right. educated enough to be able to communicate. Um, then there is, uh, so passing the written part of the test is simply the gateway into, into the next phase, which is the physical fitness part. You would be absolutely stunned at the young men and women who can't do um, 25 push-ups or 50 sit-ups. It's, mm. If you're not going to prepare yourself physically, to uh, for those challenges, uh, well, you're, you're just not going to get hired. And then you've got to go through the oral board where you're asked questions um, and then a psychological review and then a background okay. check. It's very, very intense. And, and when people don't get hired, um, they you know, there's often a reason. They, 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 they want to they come up with a reason, uh, you know, other than they failed the oral board. Will. Okay. Making excuse. Well, I failed the oral board because of this. You know, that's right. what I'm saying. That, that what what someone says doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it is.
2: Okay, I got gotcha. you. All right. Well, at one point, you know, you you started out. You're not particularly particularly religious, I don't think. But something happened in November 1989 that shifted your focus onto spirituality. What happened then?
1: Well, that was my first fatal shooting.
2: Oh, that was that was the event.
1: Okay, that was the event. Um, My uh, now, I had already been I had been a cop in New Jersey for ten years, Mm -hmm. and I left my police department, which was a small agency called Princeton, and it was only thirty police officers. And I was kind of bored, and I I just uh, I wanted more action, so uh, I tested with for the Las Vegas Metro PD, which at that time was. um, you know, f- Vegas was growing very, very quickly back in the, uh, mid eighties. And, um, I got hired. I had to go to the police academy again and then, uh, start my career all over, which was, which was an interesting, an interesting way to run my life. Right. And then, um, I was a, I was a field training officer, uh, in 1989 and, um, This story is actually in my book, A Cop's Life. But in essence, what what happened was uh, uh, a guy who was a a drug user, he was addicted to methamphetamine, had done so much methamphetamine that he started having hallucinations and um, believed that God had come to him and uh, sent him out to do battle. So what he did was he dressed up, all in black, in a, like a like black karate gear, um, okay. strapped on a shoulder holster, stole his brother 's pistol, put bandolier's ammunition, mm. stuck a sword in his belt, and went out and started shooting at kids at a high school dance and uh, um, and that 's where our fates met and uh during the ensuing gunfight. Um, I was so close to him that the muzzles of our weapons were almost touching, and we both fired at exactly the same time, and uh, I was not wearing any body armor. Oh, okay. And um, my gun jammed after the second shot that I fired.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: His gun did not jam, and he, uh, he shot at point-blank range um, a number of rounds. And uh, by the time the smoke had cleared, he was dead. And I had not even been touched by one of those bullets. You didn't have a scratch? That, not a scratch. Not a scratch. Wow. And beginning on that night and continuing to today, I asked that question, why? Why was my life spared and his not? What was it that, uh, that I was spared for? And so that began a spiritual journey for me um, because in my mind I came to the understanding that I was given a great gift and I could not waste that gift. I had to figure out what my journey was. um, Why had I lived? And I believe that it's because I had not fulfilled whatever mission I was put on this earth to do. And right. so, of course, that begs the next question, well, what is your mission? Right. And, uh, and I believe that my mission was to change and touch the lives of other people in as many positive ways as I could. And, uh, and so that's what I have tried to do for my entire career. And then, you know, with what took place at the final end of my career um, sure. really certainly did make me realize that in even greater regard –
0: Hmm. Well,
2: tell you what, let's take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we'll find out just how you're doing that, touching the lives of other people, making change, and having a positive impact on everybody, okay?
1: You got it. I'll be right right
2: here. Okay. Don't go away, everyone. We'll be right back after these messages.
0: The odds of a young girl being discovered by an industry insider while singing to herself pumping gas 1 and 300 million. The odds of the daughter of a clergyman from Severn, Maryland spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? 1 and 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? 1 and 1.4 million. The odds of selling over 40 million records? 1 and 800,000. The odds of this musician and performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One, and eighty-eight. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn more at AutismSpeaks.org/signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks, it's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Explore new areas of interest, expand your knowledge, and gain clarity about your life's purpose at the Ocala Enter Center. Affectionately known as OIC, the Ocala Inner Center, just two blocks south of town square, offers workshops, classes, healing meditations, and special events for the Ocala, Gainesville, and Central Florida spiritual community. Check out our calendar of events at OcalaIntercenter.com. And if you're looking for a place for your next workshop or seminar, go to OcalaIntercenter.com and give Gene a call.
2: Hello, everyone, and we are back. We are here with Lieutenant Randy Sutton, retired author of A Cop's Life, True Stories from Behind the Badge, several other books, and he is working very hard to have a positive impact on the lives of others. So we're going to ask him now how he was doing that. So before we get to that, Randy, though, you had this pretty amazing career, and you decided to retire. Why is that?
1: Well, actually, the decision to to retire was made for me. I had... uh... Uh, a number of experiences, which um, including that the shooting that we talked about, involving the the guy that was trying to get in and kill his wife and baby.
3: Oh Well, yeah.
1: j- just a couple months before that, my mother, with whom I lived, uh, became terminally ill, and um, I had brought her out to live with with me in, in Vegas after my father died, and I had uh, I had five years. Uh, with her that, um, uh, and she was in in very good health. And then suddenly one evening, um, I heard her screaming and, and, and took her to the hospital and we discovered that she was terminally ill. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So I took, um, I took family leave to stay with her. She wanted to, uh, we got her into home hospice and, um, let me put a plug in for hospice people right now because yes. those people are absolute angels. Um, anyway, she, uh, she stabilized enough after a couple of months that I, I was able to go back to work. Well, just a couple of weeks after I went back to work is when I was involved in that fatal shooting that, that we oh. discussed earlier. Right. So um, there's a long process, investigative process, that takes place before you can go back to work after a shooting. Uh and so that that happened um i went back i was cleared of course of everything and and you know given the the leave to go back to work and just then my mother passed away so my mother uh, was quite a remarkable woman in fact she had won a bronze star she was a medal winner in world war ii one of the few women to have won that that award and um Wow. As a result, she, she, was, uh, she was given the great honor to be uh, buried with my dad in Arlington National Cemetery. Oh. So I brought her back to Arlington, and uh, which was an incredibly moving experience. For anybody that has never seen Arlington National Cemetery, I, I recommend that because you'll, you'll never view military quite the same after that. I agree. Um, yeah. So uh, I, buried, I buried my mom. And um, came back to Las Vegas, and three weeks later, uh, I was on patrol. I was the watch commander. And when I was watch commander, I would take a young officer with me so that they could see what the watch commander did. And so I had this young police officer arriving with me, first time he had done so. And we were right on the Las Vegas Strip, and, uh, and I suffered a stroke in my police car. Oh, no. And... And of all, the, of all the experiences that I've had in my life, um, this was the most frightening thing I've ever experienced, because I, I knew what was happening. I, I literally felt my brain slowing down,
3: oh, yeah. and
1: I stopped a police car right in the middle of the street, and I turned to this kid, and I said, you got to get me medical. Uh, I'm, I'm having a stroke. And this poor kid, first he thought I was messing with him. He was looking yeah. at me like, oh, what? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, then he realized that, that that's not quite the thing I'd be joking about. Yeah. And uh, I got out of the police car and I went to the passenger side in case he needed to rush me to the hospital. And lost control. Um, I just fell to the pavement. Was unable wow. to move. Was a- unable to speak. I was speaking gibberish. And um, uh, it was it was quite literally the, the most frightening moment of my life. And I was once again um, that little angel. It's um, been sitting on my shoulder for all those years, came through for me again, and uh, and I did not suffer any permanent brain damage. Um, you know, I was uh, I I recovered from that um, with just a little bit of memory loss. Okay. And uh, but that was the hint. That was that was it for me. That my that was that was the end of my police career. Okay. Um, I could have taken an administrative job, but after yeah, 34 years of, of being a street cop, I. I can under, I can take the hint when it's given to me. Yeah. And uh, Big hint. and so uh, it was time to to move on. But those that series of experiences, living through the death of my mother, um, having to take another human life, uh, and then I was at, after the stroke. The doctors basically, their prognosis was, you take these pills and best of luck to you. Um, oh. You don't have that much longer to go and really? so while i was I was living with that with that diagnosis and that prognosis, I really examined my life in a different way than I had before and I've always been a rather introspective fellow, but this certainly made me look at life in an entirely different way mm-hmm. i i was, I was think I was wondering about legacy how would I be remembered, and how could i Keep the memories of my loved ones alive,
3: uh-huh. um,
1: and uh, and those those questions really burned in my head. And I went I went down to uh, I had read a, a book by a doctor who believed you could you could uh, reverse my condition, and he uh, he was down in Florida, uh-huh. and I went down there, and I was while I was waiting for my appointment with him, I stayed with a childhood friend of mine, a guy who I grew up with and. You know, the kind of friendship where you don't pick up the phone for six months and you pick it up and pick up the conversation exactly where it was. Right that's where you left kind of, off,
2: yes. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. That's the kind of friendship we had. <clears throat> that's a and, friend. Uh, and That's a real friend, exactly. And, and, and uh, he knew why was down there, of course. And he's a very happy-go-lucky guy. He's a, he's a fisherman. That's what he does for a living. He's a fisherman. And he loves it. And he loves life. And we were at dinner one night, and he, and he got very serious, and he asked me this question. He says, Randy, if something were to happen to you, how would I ever even know? And suddenly, my future gelled, and I created something that we are about to launch in, um, in a couple months. And I've literally been working on it all these years, and I've spent pretty much every penny that I had. But what we have created is going to touch the lives of millions of people worldwide. It's called Celebrating Legacy. And we call ourselves Where Memories Live Forever. And what we have created is the ability to create your personal legacy in written, audio, digital form, to take your your poetry, to take your artwork and your philosophies and pass them on to future generations so that your great-grandkids will know who you were and what you stood for. You'll be able to memorialize loved ones who've passed away I mean uh my my mother's poetry, my father's artwork. Well, you know, it's um uh it's very important for me that they be remembered. And so what we have created is um is the this incredible online service that that we're going to launch shortly. In fact, if any of your listeners want to take a look at it, it's com. We have a demonstration site up there, but it's okay. um it's, it's it's going to bring families closer together through the sharing of memories and the archiving of those memories. You know, everybody is very very fascinated about about ancestry and about you know our roots. Right. This is going to allow people to uh, chronicle their their own family stories and share it with their loved ones and archive it so that our, our great grandchildren will know who we are. And that's that's. That's one of the major ways that, that I'm going to impact the world. Um, what I have also created is a website called thelegacychallenge.com, and uh, this is uh, a website that allows people to do a couple different things. One is look, in their, look into their own into their own lives and, and take the Legacy Challenge, which is an introspective series of questions about their life and how will they be remembered. How mm-hmm. can we? How can we help the lives of others and, and be personal heroes? See one of the things that, that I'm, I'm I'm really passionate about is that there are so many good people out there doing wonderful things for others um you know as a cop, I saw a lot of bad I saw a lot of cruelty, violence i saw death i saw I saw things that that people are capable of doing to one another which are almost um uh unimaginable yeah and 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 that and that has a real effect on you as as you grow older, but there was all there was other things that I saw I saw amazing bravery, I saw people that that uh, that gave back in ways that were incredible and that 's what I decided that I wanted to do with the time that I have left is to celebrate those people those are personal heroes in my in my estimation that's what that 's what it is uh, when you when you enter the life of somebody else and and you do something for them um, with, with out regard to thanks or to reward, but you you enter someone 's life, and sometimes it can be something as simple as fixing a kid 's bicycle but right. what I did was I, I went off in search of those people, and I spent a year uh, traveling in this country talking to people who I believed have done amazing things with their lives. And I, I didn't ask them about them. I asked them about who it was in their life that inspired them. Who was their personal hero? Right. And I got some amazing responses, Charlotte, amazing, mm. and, very inspirational. For instance, I talked to the man who created the Make-A-Wish Foundation, who, by the way, was a police officer. Okay. and, and talked to him about who it was in his life that, um, that influenced him in such a, in such a, a way that he, that he became the person that he was. I talked to Gary Sinise. Um, you probably know him as Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump, but he's also the voice of the uh, Wounded Warrior Foundation and created his own foundation, the Gary Sinise Foundation, and he's done absolutely... Uncountable um, events and charities and given back to, to veterans all over this country, and, and and I have I have an astronaut, I have uh, people that that are in the entertainment industry that have that have touched lives in, in amazing ways. I get um, mm-hmm. Bill O'Reilly gave me an interview, and I mean for these people to reach out and, and allow me to talk to them about who it was that influenced their lives. Was was nothing short of an inspiration to me, and that right. is the new book that is going to be coming out this year. It's called The Power of Legacy: Personal right. Heroes of America's Most Inspiring People, and that is um, that is that is coming out this year, and I believe is gonna is gonna touch a lot of lives.
2: Okay, and I love the website. I mean, let me back up. The CelebratingLegacy.com idea is absolutely stellar, and I think you will make a major impact on the world, and I will certainly con- continue to promote that. But just the ability to do that, and is it something where you can kind of uh, tackle into your your family members and have a yes. whole – okay, like kind of put your leaf on the branch of the family tree and, and your story about your family and that kind of thing?
1: Yes, in essence, that's, that's correct. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of services that are on this site, and it and includes – uh, we created a we created an entire new social network called the Family Journal, and okay. this is this is going to be consider Facebook and LinkedIn, but for important stuff and permanent archives. Okay. So that you know, when you refer to your friend, when you bring your friend onto onto uh, celebrate legacy, it's because they are your true friend. Remember the guy right. I was talking about that I went down to Florida? Yeah. You know, the uh you know, that that I had grown up with. He right. would be on my family journal. And as would my, my immediate family, you know, the people that I really want to communicate those kind of, you know, events and life journeys yeah. with. Right. Uh so yeah, that's what uh that's what you know, it was really important to me, especially after I got the diagnosis that I did. Um, I knew I wasn't alone. You know, there's millions and millions of people who are facing the same kind of, of uh, life-threatening situation that I did and uh, and are, you know, looking at, at, at their lives and how they're going to be remembered and how they can comfort their families. Um, and and so knowing that, that that my situation was not unique, I knew what would make me feel better, you know, what would comfort me. Um, and, and so that's why i created celebrating legacy that's why i had the dream and um and now i have an amazing team of people with me um that have helped me realize this dream and uh okay. and so i'm i'm ex- really really excited about this and i think that uh i think when i when i when i think of what my most important mission uh in this life was i think it was this and that's okay. all of those experiences that that you know that that were painful and that, um, you know, led, you know that, that led me down to a certain path. Um, I think that's what it was, I think it was meant to be.
2: Yes, I do, too. I agree, and I'm extremely excited for you. I think it's a brilliant idea, and I'm glad you were able to embrace the new phase in your life after your stroke, so bravo on that as well. But I want to get to the um, Legacy Challenge .com your website mm-hmm. and I want I want to right. let people know everything that they can do. Ladies and gentlemen, there is so much on here for you to participate. It's called the com and it basically the legacy challenge be, begins with a simple premise that you cannot choose your destiny, but you will create your legacy. So at the website, you can join brandy, you can get the legacy lowdown, subscribe to the blog or a newsletter. You can share a hero story. If you know a hero whose story you would like to honor, you can share that with Randy, and he'll be doing some things with it, and I'll ask him that in a few minutes, what he'll do. You can also take the Legacy Challenge. Can you answer yes to this challenge? Go there. In addition, Legacy Moments. It's a podcast. Is that your new radio show?
1: No, the the radio show is the power the, uh, Power of Legacy radio show.
2: Okay, and then there's legacy opportunities, messages to heaven, where you can send messages of love and hope that transcend our world and reach those that we have loved and lost. So this is a, a, an opportunity, if it would make you feel better, to get a message to a loved one who has passed away and who is now awaiting your arrival home in heaven. And that is just that is such a nice touch. And well, you, 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 you know to why, mention, why
1: we're on that subject? Mm-hmm. They, people can go on to that. I, I created that because I knew there were, there were times when I wanted to pick up the phone and talk to my dad, you know, even though, you know, he's been gone for years. But I, I knew it would make me feel better to say something, even though, you know, I don't know that he's going to be hearing it, but I think mm-hmm. he will. And mm-hmm. so um, you can go on and read these messages, too. They're, 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 they're uh, you know, anonymous. Uh, their first names, generally speaking. And right. uh, and he, the, there are some beautiful, beautiful thoughts. And it, it gives people comfort, I know. And I invite any of your listeners to come on and, and do a message to heaven.
3: Mm.
2: Well, I can clear up any doubt as to whether or not they get the messages. Yeah, that's you.
3: right. You, you can, Thomas can't you?
2: Idiot. They get the messages, um, they are with you, and if they are off doing something else, I don't, you know, I don't want to go too deep into this, but they can go study, learn an instrument, um, build something, and involve themselves in a creative project. So even if they are otherwise occupied, a message can still be delivered to them. So whether you write a message here, whether you think it, say it, sing it, doesn't matter that energy it's all energy so that energy is transmitted either directly to them or by way of their circle so every every message does get to your loved one please do not do not ever doubt that so that's that's where that goes because you just got you just got to trust you know and the next question i wanted to ask you Randy uh, the book the power mm-hmm. of legacy when will that come out um, I'm hoping to bring it out
1: by Christmas time. And okay. um, if, if people come on to the Legacy Challenge website, um, which is soon to be renamed the Power of Legacy website, uh, they, can, they can sign up for an advanced copy. And uh, I'd love to uh, have the in from your listeners uh, to the Legacy Challenge. love for them to share a story about who's a personal hero of theirs and, yeah. um, and uh, sign up for, for the newsletter and, 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 uh, and the book.
2: Uh, I, I definitely will, and I think I have a few nice stories to share with you. And you recently started your radio show on Blog Talk Radio. Tell us a little bit about what yeah. you're doing with that.
1: Well, I, you know, it's uh, I'm going to take a chapter out of, out of your book. Um, I'm going to uh, I started this little radio show, and and what I'm I'm doing is I'm bringing on people as guests that uh, that have that have touched the lives of others. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting people that that have that I consider. To be personal heroes. One of uh, one of my first guests was uh, was a young woman who has uh, a, a remarkable story of survival, and her life and my life uh, some, somewhat became uh, intertwined because I watched her get hit by a tractor trailer while she was crossing the street in her wheelchair, Oh, my and God. Um, and uh, was able to to comfort her. After she was, you know, injured so severely, and we become friends, Uh, she survived that through some miraculous, miraculous way, and um, and and so she is now writing a book about that experience, and I brought her on as one of my first guests.
2: Okay, well, I would think that she deserves that honor. Good Lord Almighty.
1: But, I
3: know, you
2: know. I know. When, when your numbers up, your numbers up. So obviously, she's meant to do something too, and maybe her book will change the the lives and perspectives of others. As exactly. Well, exactly. You know? That's... Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, cool. What's the address for your radio show?
1: It's um, it... uh, it's Power of Legacy Radio on Blog okay. Talk.
2: So I'll be sure to remind everybody at the end. Now, I want to just um. For a few minutes, I want to talk about the book because it really did impact me. It it evoked emotion. It gave me a very clear idea of what you go through as as a police officer, and it reminded me of a story. um, Not a story. It reminded me of something that happened when I was around 24, and I was still living in Philadelphia. And you're so clear in the book about how you felt. Like I said, it's emotionally raw and honest. And and I've seen that in an an officer that I met one day when my boyfriend and I went to get something to eat. Um, We were living in South Philly, and we were in this um, local place. And I look over, and there's an officer standing there, but he wasn't there. He was somewhere else in his head because his eyes were all glazed over, and he was—it it just he it was in so much shock. That was it. He was—he was just in shock. So I looked at my boyfriend like, "Oh my god!" And then I—I I didn't move near him because I didn't want to startle him out of that. So I stayed where I was, and I said, "Excuse me, officer, are you okay?" And he turned real slow, and he looked at me, and he said, "I don't know." And we were like, what happened? Oh boy. And he says, I just came from a call. I said, what's wrong? What happened? He said, well, I, I, I answered the call and I got to the house and I was the first one there. And I got there to find that this girl came home. It was a few minutes after her curfew. Her father was upset with her. And she, you know how you're a kid and you try to get up those steps and away from your parents as fast as you can. So she got to the top of the steps. The father said something, and the girl turns around and said something flippant. So the father pulled out a gun and shot her in the chest.
1: Oh, jeez.
2: And we were like, oh, my God, where the heck was this? And he said, right around the corner on Snyder Avenue. Said, Snyder Avenue. What was the guy's name? And he said, Chris Townsend. And that's when I got upset. And I said, which one of the kids got shot? And he said, her name was Sandy. And that's, you know, that's pretty much when I lost it. Because I used to babysit Sandy when she was an infant. Oh, no. hmm And. Oh, my God. This man was just so horrified that this guy could do this. She lived, by the way. But well, that's, a little, so that's a little bright yet. spot. Thank God she lived. and um, But this uh, the look in his eyes and him having to go home, he was stopping just to get something to eat and go home. It, everything was all done at the scene. But he had to try to sleep that night. And so did I, to be honest. Oh, yeah. But he was yeah. the first one there. He saw the blood and the gore and, and Chris with God, I can only imagine the explanation that came out of that guy's house. This is the type of person that just, you know, doesn't care much about anybody but himself. And, and if you walk through his house, although I cannot remember the reason, I would have been in his house. But I remember my shoes sticking to the carpet, if that gives you an idea of what kind of person he was. But so I just yeah. wanted to basically tell you that I have seen that look in their eyes. And I and I see what cops, um, I, I saw the emotion involved with having to answer a call like that. You can, they can say things on the news, but they don't get into, you know, yes, and this person, one person didn't survive, the other person is being treated in the hospital oh and by the way the first cop that showed up at the scene is doing okay they they don't follow up with you know or you know or he's he's pretty traumatized they don't do that but in the book did you is there something you wanted to say Randy in response well, to that well
1: you know there's there's um there's a couple things um one of the one of the one of the things that, about being a cop is and you have to accept it when you when you put when you put that badge on is you know we we have to be insulators that is that we take in that type of trauma so that other people don't have to and and that's part of of what it means to be a cop and that's part of the bravery that takes place but at the same time you know To be to be heralded for that is um, in in a sense that's what we get paid for, right? And that's why we take that job to begin with because we believe that that's part of our service that Mm. being an observer and and taking part and 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 helping that that young girl who we no doubt you know went went to her aid to try and save her life, you know, that part of that experience is what we do. And that's part of our journey. But, you know, it's, it's, I, one of the reasons I did that book was so that people would get an understanding of the things that, that we actually see and feel because police officers are really, really good at not showing emotion. I'm surprised that he displayed himself as much as he did to you, which shows just how much that he was traumatized by it. It
2: rocked his world. It really did.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know,
2: every single
1: police officer in his career, that will happen to him multiple times.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: Well, in the book... There was something that struck me. Of course, several this in the stories. You're, you're, this
1: is the book of Cops' Life.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and several of the stories, yeah, it has that element of, oh, my God, and, you know, um, it's like with the ultimate ninja guy, the guy who was shooting up the high school dance, and you, you had to take his life. But there is one story in here where a young man is in a retail store, and you and your partner pull up. And you see the young man hitting a woman in the face with the butt of a rifle. And you make your partner stay outside. You get in there. Either way, somehow you get that kid out of there. looked to be about 16. And you get him on the ground. And he, 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 he pulled some stunt to make you not shoot him. So you didn't shoot him. But then while you had him on the ground, he finally looked up at you. And you described his eyes as being so, horrible, so hollow and demonic, and he just laughed at you. And in that story, you actually lost an opportunity to do a service to humanity because later on you learned part where you get back to the patrol car and your partner gets up and said, I'm done, and just gets up and leaves, and he couldn't do it, not after seeing this kid and that, that evil in his eyes. But then later on, you learned that after he got out of juvie, because it turned out he was only, how old? 11?
1: He was fifth, 12? Fifth, uh, he was third, uh,
3: 14.
2: Thirteen? Okay. So he was even younger than you thought, but once he got out of juvie, he actually did kill somebody. And you went to the trial, and when you went in and sat down, there was the partner who had gotten up from the car and, and put his badge on the seat and walked away. And you come to learn that this kid did kill somebody. So there is a moment where you... Explore the emotions of, I had a chance, and I didn't take it, yeah. and once that moment was lost, and I understand, I, I I just want to say that it touched me because I kind of know how that feels because I've met people with that look in their eyes, and there, there, and there was nothing I could do, you know. But anyway, just to say that, you know, does that still haunt you? Have you gotten over the feeling the guilt that you might have saved two other people's lives if you, if the timing of that event had been different and you had taken the shot?
1: Well, you know, he, um, we were actually responding to an armed robbery there. And, uh, this, this little punk had not only robbed the place when, when I, when I pulled up, um, uh, I saw him running towards the front of the store and, he had a stocking over his face. He had a machine gun in one hand and a bag of money in the other. And he just pistol whipped or he beaten the, the store clerks for absolutely no reason, um, hospitalized them. And that's when he came bursting out of the store. And I had to make that decision in, in a literally in a heartbeat whether or not to shoot him. And, um, and I didn't. I gave him the, I gave him the, uh, the challenge throw the gun down, and he did. Um, and uh, got him handcuffed, and my, my, my partner at the time was a trainee. He was, I was a field training officer, and I was training him. And uh, uh, I took the mask off this kid, and he looked up at me. I realized how young he was, and he, he smiled, and he said, I should have killed you when I had the chance. That's what he said to me. Mm. And I realized that I had I had made a serious error that I should have yeah. I should have taken that shot, yeah. and uh, and then then it, then he, he he served almost no time in juvie and came out and killed a an elderly uh, woman in a wheelchair, and mm. uh, and it really was to, uh, it was one of the times one of the few times when I I wish I had pulled the trigger, right. I would have saved. I would have saved a lot, a lot of heartache to a lot of people.
2: No doubt, but as and my, my as, trainee
1: realized, you're right um, that uh, that he wasn't cut out for police work, and that okay. was just last night.
2: And interesting that he showed up at the trial, and you got to connect with him again. But I mean, as as horrifying and sad and depressing as that is, there are actually moments in the, in the book where they're very inspiring, and one of them. Is the story of Jackie, who is the six-month-old girl who was in the car seat. You have this beautiful new family driving in the car in, through Las Vegas. It was on the strip, I believe. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But a car pulls up beside them and for no reason whatsoever opened fire and shot half the baby's face off. And you were the first to get there. Can you give us a brief synopsis of how you? saved her life and then i want to ask where she is today
1: well you know that was when i when i look back on my career um and of uh, and of all the dramatic life-changing events that i went through um this is probably one of the most poignant um and the the synopsis is basically as you said the mother and a father uh from uh, guatemala they were um uh, they were taking their baby, who was strapped into a baby seat, one month old. And, and they were oh, taking the baby to, to the... No, she was one month old. Oh,
2: I'm sorry. And,
1: uh, and these punks pulled up alongside of them. And we later found out it was a gang initiation. And they just opened fire on the car for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And they peppered the car with bullets. And um, um, I was on patrol at the time I was a sergeant. And uh, I had no idea that there was a shooting, that I saw a car up on the sidewalk and people running around screaming. And I, of course, had no idea what had taken place, and I just radioed that I was going to be out on an unknown trouble. And as I got out of my car, I hear, I hear the yelling and screaming, and somebody screams, oh, my God, the baby's been shot. The baby's been shot. And I look down, and, and there in the little baby seat on the curb, is this child with this grievous injury to her face. One of the bullets had, had hit her in the face. Uh, and, um, and that then, uh, you know, now if you can imagine the, the insanity of the scene. Now yeah. I know that there's a shooting, but I don't know where the shooter is. I have no idea if it just happened. If, I, I, I know nothing. Yeah. All I know is I have a, a screaming crowd and a, and a baby who's bleeding to death. And I radioed, you know, I needed assistance. And when I went down to check the baby, I realized that I couldn't wait for an ambulance because she was, she was going to die. Yes. Yeah. And when the first patrol car got there, I picked her up and I said to, my, to the officer who got there, we're going to the hospital right now, we can't wait. And I was, um, I was able to, to clear her airway and give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on the way to the hospital and fortunately, because I was, I was placed there literally within a minute of the shooting, the little baby came back, and there was no brain damage, and uh, when we got to the hospital, the trauma team did an amazing job, and, um, and she's now um, 16 years old, and uh, I actually saw her just uh, a couple months ago, 'Cause she's my goddaughter now.
2: Oh. That's precious. And it says in the story that the community really rallied and raised some money. Um, nightclubs donated a couple nights of receipts for her uh, reconstructive surgery, doctors donated their time, radio stations got involved, so I was very touched by the community's um action yes. to support this yes. little girl's it, healing. It was
1: it was it was amazing. It was it was absolutely amazing. Her story touched um, so many people in the community um, that uh, literally she still ha- she is still having reconstructive surgery. The, she is. The bullet did that much damage.
3: Oh my god!
1: It it, it uh, uh, But now you can't hardly tell, and they've done a fantastic job. The parents are the most loving people you can imagine. I was I was honored uh, in her fifteenth birthday. Um, to be invited to her quinceañera which mm-hmm. in in the uh you know latin culture um is is the, the coming of age of of a young girl it's a it's a huge honor and i was given the, the the dance right after her dad um and that so that's the that's the kind of this family is is so full of love and so full of support um and this this uh her name is Jackie of course and she's grown into a um, uh, an intelligent, caring, sensitive young woman who is uh, who who's, who's going to play a part in this world
2: mm. she sounds beautiful she is she, wow well, i you know as I was moving through the book and i 'm reading all these stories, although that had a happy ending, you know here reading about it and because your writing is just so damn beautiful. It, it takes you there. It's like you're sitting there witnessing all this stuff. And I thought halfway through, like, how the hell is this going to end? Like, how can you possibly end this on a, on a positive note? And then I found that it did. <laughs> so I basically, you know, saw that your intention for the book, it, it's not always about bringing down the bad guys. Sometimes it's about reaching through your heart and lifting the good guys up. And in the last story, in this case, it was a distraught juvenile and if you don't mind, I'd like to read a paragraph, not to tell everybody what happens, but just to give additional insight into what it's like to be an officer of the law and then what you had to deal with in this particular story. Okay?
3: Sure. Go ahead.
2: All right. So you, you receive a call. It's pretty quiet, but you receive a call, and it's not so much a domestic violence dispute. that It was an issue with a juvenile. So you go and check it out, knock on the door. And this nice little old lady answers the door, and you have to. she wants you to deal with this situation. So she goes on to say this. Um, oh, no, this isn't you. I'm sorry. This is Pete. This is an, another officer where the story was too good not to include in the book. I'm sorry. So she says to Pete, just talk to her, officer. Maybe you, maybe you will know better than me what to say. And this is a situation where the uh, young girl was locked in the bathroom and he had to be sure of her safety. So she says, just talk to her, officer. Maybe you will know better than me what to say. Pete had talked suicidal people off of rooftops and and cornered robbers out of hiding. He had talked people out of their rage and need for revenge. He had talked adolescents out of their despair. Talking was what cops did. Very little of life on the street involved pointing a gun at someone's chest or wrestling people to the floor to handcuff them. You talked. That's what you did. You reasoned and conjoled and offered sympathy and gave a face to authority. But for some reason, Pete had to take a deep breath. Pete had to take a deep breath and gather himself to go and talk to a little girl who had a beef with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard because I know. What the, what the problem was. But that's where it leaves off, and then there's this beautiful ending that is so inspiring. I told somebody about it on the telephone, and she started crying. <laughs> but I, I love that you included that story, even though you weren't directly involved, but that was an absolutely beautiful story and the perfect way to end the book. And literally, what, what I would say that. What makes you
1: think I, I wasn't directly involved? Oh, just because there was a different name? Yeah. Well, because
2: because I'm very gullible and I believe everything I read.
1: <laughs>
2: I see. Okay, well, that's your secret, right? <laughs> you got Is it. Is that another one of your secrets? Well, well listen, there's something – can I get your professional opinion on something? Sure. Um, well, there, there's a couple instances I had in, in – that involved an officer and i and I don't know what to think, so I wanted to ask you about it if if that's okay um i was the like I was in someone's home um with with my husband and his wife came into the living room and she was all dressed up in her sheriff's deputy outfit, and the husband introduced us, and I said, "Hi, nice to meet you and for some reason, i don't understand she she merely looked me up and down as if I was some perpetrator who simply hadn't been caught yet, opened up the front door, walked out, and shut it. And to be honest, my feelings are really hurt, and there's been other instances where I can say, I try to make eye contact, nod, and say hello or how are you, and I don't get a response from some people. Why do, why do some people do that? Is that part of training or is that a personal choice? How, help me understand that
1: well it's it's difficult to understand rude behavior and that's all that was that was rude behavior whether she was wearing a churro uniform or a prom dress uh she was a rude bitch that's really the that's really what that comes down to
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know there's a when you represent your community by wearing that that uniform wearing that with pride is is essential and part of that is that uh you need to treat people with respect and dignity. Uh, one of the things that I talk about, I, you know, I, I go all over the country and I talk about a topic called policing with honor, and that's mm-hmm. about surviving your career ethically as well as, as, well as uh, physically. And um, one of those things that, that uh, sometimes gets lost in the translation yeah. is how important it is that you represent that badge with honor and the way to do that is to treat people with dignity and respect and when when she was in that uniform uh it was really incumbent upon her to treat you with dignity and respect and by being rude to you even in that sense she was uh she was not acting the way she should have and so there's no excuse for that that's just uh that's just a rude behavior
2: yeah, I was, I was I was pretty hurt by it to be honest.
1: Well, you know, there now, let me take that to a different level because the the number one complaint against police officers in this country um is um is is our behavior issues and their and their it's, it's rudeness um that kind of thing. Is the number one? It's called discourtesy. Is what, is what the complaint is called usually in different agencies? Okay. Mm-hmm. And that runs the gamut from, you know, he was his answers were short uh, to, to hey he had his hand on his gun when he came when he walked up to my the car door and I'm not a, I'm not a criminal but he treated me like I was a criminal and a lot of this is due to a miscommunication. When I go around the country and I talk about the topic of policing with honor, it's because uh, very often even police officers, they, um, they're so used to their daily activities that they forget that they are in, in uniform. And when they, when they do that, they forget that they're on stage. And everything that they do is judged judged by the, the way that they look, judged by their actions. And there's, there's often a misinterpretation because when a police officer uh, has any interaction with somebody else, they have to be able to mentally and emotionally um, make a transition in a heartbeat, literally in the blink of an eye,
3: uh-huh. from
1: a, just a, a routine um, interaction to having to take someone's life by evaluating that situation and they know that that it changes in a heartbeat you are often in a situation that may appear to be completely innocuous but if you aren't prepared to transition to be a warrior then you can die
3: mm, and so okay.
1: it's sometimes it's difficult for for especially you know uh, new police officers Evolve. I mean, when, when you evolve in your career, just like you evolve as a human being. So the way you may maneuver around a certain situation when you have two years on the job, maybe it's entirely different than when you have seven years on the job. So mm. there is a there's always there's always a um, you know an, an evolution, a personal evolution that takes place in the career of a police officer. Like a maturity. Like a maturity. Um, well, you know, you hope you hope that it's a maturity. Unfortunately, right. there there are sometimes when cynicism gets into the mix, and cynicism is a is a police officer's worst enemy. Sure. Becoming uh, jaded and cynical um, is unfortunately a, an all too real um, emotion that takes place. And sometimes there's a you go through a, a few years in your career where you hate everybody. Everybody is a is is a, is a suspect and a scumbag and right. Um, it, although it isn't reality, it's your reality, and okay. so that's that can be very very damaging to a to a police officer's psyche and and to their career.
2: Are there resources available to help someone out of a funk like that?
1: Um, there are in some agencies. There are not in other agencies. But there's always places for. Gaining understanding about yourself, you know, and and that's a difficult thing to do sometimes. But you know, one of the things about being a cop is is you have a big family. Um, everybody that, that wears that badge is part of your family, and yeah, so do. reaching out and being able to talk to others. Uh, I mean, I've from from my books and from my speaking engagements, my articles. I mean, I, I I've had at least. Twelve police officers contact me and say that they were going to commit suicide until they read my words or heard me talk. Okay. So you know, you, you, I take that really seriously. You know, when yes, yeah. that that book that, that that we were talking about, a uh, cop's life, um, that's actually required reading to a lot of the, in a lot of police academies because it is so real and and it and it offers a glimpse into. Into the heart of um, you know a guy that you know during various phases of my career, you know i was uh, you know I was pretty jaded and cynical myself.
2: no Dell, how did you manage that this is required reading in academies around the country
1: right there are um, there are police academies that use that book both as a um, required reading for their recruits but also for family members because, you know, one of the things that, that takes place is there's a really big divorce rate in policing. Yeah. Sure. And, um, and that's because, uh, the families don't understand what's going on in the minds of their loved one. And a lot of police officers want to protect their families from the harsh realities of their lives. So they don't share a lot of these stories
2: and, they and bury uh,
1: it. and they bury it. So yeah. by, um, uh, you know, offering my book up as a, as a way to get a glimpse into what the realities are, um, it, they found that it helps.
2: Okay, well, that's a nice feather in your cap. That's great.
1: Well, it's, it's you know, it's a great it's a great honor. You know that that if I mean that's that's the purpose of 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 my books and my my writings is being able to you know make a difference. Uh, you know if if they if if my words can't touch someone if they don't touch someone then i i I have failed right because that's that's the purpose that they that they exist that's why i i mean I bled onto those pages um you know if if they can help someone else and they can you know create understanding and maybe change the way some people even view the police then you know I've done something positive
2: absolutely i uh, well i think you i think you hit your mark with this. It's fantastic. I love everything that you're doing for others and um, civilians and law enforcement alike. It's just amazing. And I, I hope this doesn't sound very condescending, but I'm extremely proud of you.
1: Thank you so much. I, I do appreciate that.
2: You're welcome. Well, any list nugget of wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with
3: <laughs> before, we,
2: before we sign off? We could probably make a couple segments out of this to be honest you you have so much to share, but I know we've pretty much accomplished our goal in this segment. but if you ever want to come back, just let me know
1: oh i would i'd love I love to as you're, you're a very engaging host and i uh I love the opportunity to talk about you know what the you know the legacy projects and you know it's just the only thing I would ask for your listeners to do is uh, is think about how they can touch the lives of others, and how they can become personal heroes. And if I can help uh, by them you know, uh, contacting me at uh, thelegacychallenge.com, I welcome that opportunity, and I just hope that they enjoy the website and enjoy my books and, and uh, the power of legacy that's going to come out this year.
2: Fantastic. Wow. Well, Randy Sutton, everyone. The book is A Cop's Life, True Stories from Behind the Badge. Get this book. If you harbor any reservations regarding law enforcement, this book will leave you humbled and grateful, I promise you. If you are in law enforcement, go to the website and extend an invitation to Randy to bring his Policing with Honor seminar to your city. And don't forget, if you have a desire to speak your truth, Randy provides a safe haven so that you can do that at his website, thelegacychallenge.com. Don't forget, celebratinglegacy.com. Check it out, and be sure to tune in to his Power of Legacy radio show at blogtalkradio.com slash Randy Sutton. You can follow the show, set a reminder, and I'm sure that will continue to grow as you have time to do it. And, um, hey, Randy, I got something for you.
1: Oh, I can't wait.
2: Check it out. (laughs) Bringing
1: back memories. (laughs) <laughs> I just
2: had to do that <laughs> I thought it was funny Alright dear, well thank you so much for coming on And sharing your heart, your love and your pain with us It is most illuminating to get an inside look Into the humanity behind the badge I appreciate it
1: Thank you so much for having me as your guest I appreciate it and thank your listeners for, uh, for listening to your show
2: Okay, well I've had, a real, I've had a real blast So I will be talking to you soon
1: Okay. Talk to you soon.
2: Bye. All right, then. All right, everybody. That's our show for today. Until next time, we hope you've enjoyed this dialogue and got a sense of how difficult it can be to perform the duties of a job like that of law enforcement. But until next time, everyone, God bless and be at peace.